difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. Uh, Scott Tobias won't be joining us because he's laid up with a broken leg and a case of whiskey, but we can't wait to see what he produces in his time away. On last week's show, we talked about Citizen Kane. On this week's episode, we'll discuss a film about Citizen Kane. Sort of. Uh, David Fincher's latest, the director's first film for Netflix, is a biopic of a screenwriter, Herman Mankiewicz, adapted from a screenplay by Jack Fincher, the director's father, who died in 2003. In interviews, Fincher has talked about how his father's first draft essentially took the same position that Pauline Kael took in her essay, Raising Kane, that Mankiewicz deserved credit as the true author of Citizen Kane. Though the finished film certainly makes the case for giving Mankiewicz more of the credit than he's often received over the years, it's more interested in peeling back the layers of a complex character and exploring the many personal and cultural themes that found their way into Kane. Jerry Oldman starts as Mankiewicz, depicted in the film as a brilliant lush working on the script that will become Citizen Kane in near isolation, and also shown in earlier times when he found his wit, both on the page and in person, lent him cultural currency in Hollywood. Then he watched as that currency lost its value when his politics ran counter to those in power and his love of alcohol and gambling loosened his tongue once too often. Like Kane, it's a rise and fall story told in pieces, but one ultimately with a different sort of arc in the form of a late career triumph, albeit one that would leave Mankiewicz no less isolated than before. We'll talk it over after the break. Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talked. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but where to call him Mank? Mankowitz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, blood, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. All right, so, everyone, Mank. I always want to put an exclamation point after it for some reason. It does uh, feel very, very mank. Yeah, you know, that's, that's the musical coming soon. Uh, uh, mank, what did, what did everyone think of mank? I think I like the idea of mank more than I like the final product of mank. And, and it's not a film I disliked or, or that I didn't enjoy watching, but especially in its first third, it felt like very sweaty to me like there is so much of like what do you think person with a famous <laughs> yeah. name or oh that's the person with a famous name like it didn't feel at all organic in its setup in a way that I found very hard to get over in the beginning but it mellowed out and especially once sort of the political angle kind of became a little clearer and the whole thing with Upton Sinclair and Hearst and Mayer's manipulation of that election. I think it became more interesting as a narrative, but as a character study and sort of a portrait of like this era in filmmaking, it just felt a little, it didn't feel as assured to me. And especially when put next to one of the most assured films ever made. Mm. I think that's maybe an unfair comparison to make, but I'm going to make it anyway, because it's also, it's David Fincher. Like he can, he can handle some, some criticism, <laughs> you know? I, I'm in the same boat. I feel like this movie suffers from watching it as a, a direct back-to-back double feature with, with Kane, as would so many other films. Um, <laughs> I think if nothing else, the attempt to do it via chopped up flashbacks, particularly at the end, where you get the exact same flashback, the same moment chopped up into increasingly fine segments as as you jump back and forth between this pivotal moment and a different time period, that it starts to seem a little too self-conscious. It started to me to seem like a labored attempt to not only ape Kane in structure and narrative, but to try to ape it in impact and import 
in a way that uh, didn't entirely work for me. I also found the ending kind of rushed. And I don't know, it, it seems to me that the theme of Cain is laid out at the very beginning. You you know exactly what kind of quest you're on, you mm. know what the significance of it is. With Mank, I felt like I struggled a little to decide what the theme of the movie was until a late film conversation with Irving Thalberg, at which point it almost became a little too obvious. Like, Thalberg was effectively saying, look, Mankiewicz, you need to accept that this is the theme of the picture, and if you're not on board <laughs> <laughs> with the theme of the picture, there's an issue here. So I'm in the same boat as Genevieve. Like, there's some great performances here. There's some meaningful moments. There's some really interesting air clearing about exactly what the relationship of reality and mm. fiction was here, and potentially what Mankiewicz thought about it. But I just I didn't find it as riveting as one of the greatest films of all time. And the fact that it's so blatantly following in its footsteps, trying to echo it visually and narratively and conceptually and structurally and emotionally, kind of kind of hurts it a little bit. Yeah, I I watched this film. I thought it was pretty good, but just pretty good. And then I, I went and, <laughs> and I sought out some reviews, and there were there are a lot of like really over the moon reviews for this film. I'm like, well. Maybe I missed things. So I watched it again, and I still thought it was pretty good. <laughs> you know, I, I think it, it's, it's a really interesting world and a really interesting story, and I'm looking forward to discussing this. But even beyond unflattering comparisons to Kane, it's a film with a lot of like sort of strange pacing problems. The end is kind of like a a little wistful sigh that that, that kind of it's like yeah, that's the end of the story. All right, there's a lot of like about it. I mean, I think Oldman is it's a very uh, big performance like he's definitely playing Mankiewicz as as a character almost from from a, a, a film written by Herman Mankiewicz which I think mostly works I think Seyfried is terrific as right. Marion Davies I think that's, 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 that's a real standout performance so much so that I didn't realize that how on the nose some of her dialogue was until the second time I watched uh, the film and I think you know I think there are individual sequences that are a reason enough for the film to exist I, uh, chopped up as it is I do really love that final scene at her at San Simeon uh, where Mankiewicz is trying to speak truth to power and he is is made aware of of not only how much the power is going to be unbending but how much his very ability to speak truth to power is being funded by the power he's speaking out against there's some really good stuff in this but i mean i also feel like the decision to shoot in black and white decision to do i love the score is terrific but the decision to do a score that that is you know deeply reminiscent of a of a, a studio hollywood studio film of the era I never really necessarily found a compelling reason to do that other than as a technical accomplishment, which, of course, Fincher, you know, is, is peerless when it comes to technical accomplishments. Even that being said, I, I feel like there's there's something about the digital black and white that doesn't quite look right if you're going to try to imitate uh, a studio film, no matter how many, like, cigarette burns or, like, you know, grain right. you add to it, you know. So, I don't know. I'm glad I saw it twice, I guess. But uh, it's, I think it's a, it's a perfectly good movie that sheds a light on an aspect of not only this film, but of Hollywood filmmaking and and, uh, and Mankiewicz's life that hadn't been really been done, at least in, in film form before. But uh, But I was not bowled over by it. I think Genevieve is also just exactly right in that, like, I, I know, I know what they're going for here. A lot of these people are big, important players in the story. It is significant that so many power players were in the same setting as each other and that they interacted with uh, Mankiewicz, you know, that this was his world. But it's still really hard not to think of walk hard whenever <laughs> somebody yeah. says the effective equivalent of, well, what do you think about that? Paul McCartney of the Beatles. Yeah. You know, there are just there are way too many scenes where he walks into a room and is like, oh, hello, David O. Selznick and also Irving Thalberg. What an incredible uh, opportunity to see you here. Just before Louis B. Meyer walks off to talk with Charlie <laughs> Chaplin. You know, it, it again, it feels a little a little too on the nose and a little too like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. These people are all famous. We're going to go see another famous person. And I think some of that is an attempt to mirror some of the screenwriting conventions of the era, mm -hmm. but in a way that doesn't quite work either. You know, I feel like the performances are better at capturing some of the acting uh, rhythms of the studio era in ways that the script isn't. You know, right. it either feels too on the nose or it feels like clumsy instead of evocative of a different way of storytelling. 
Yeah, like there, there is an older style of acting happening here, very purposely so. Fincher has spoken about that, and I, I, I think that's a really good insight, Keith. That it, I see the difference in that style, but it didn't really feel like it permeated the entire film, and I think that is probably the fault of the script and it not necessarily doing the work on that level to kind of project this older era of performance and dialogue. I found the black and white distracting. Again, this movie suffers for watching it right after Citizen Kane, because the blacks in Citizen Kane are so deep, and the contrast is so sharp and striking. And then also just the framing in Kane. We didn't talk in the first half about the deep focus techniques that he's using and the constant framing of things. So something's right up against the viewer's face and something's like off in the depth of the screen somewhere. But that's something that he uses to really effective uh, use in a lot of different ways. And just over and over with Mank, I kept thinking, oh, this is shot in a much more conventional way. And the black and white just comes out to like a kind of gray an awful lot of the time. Like, if you're mimicking a film for effect, you need to go further into mimicking the film for effect, particularly when it's some of the best and best known effects of history. Yeah, there's just so much about this film that I like more in theory than in execution, right down to like, what it is ultimately about, which is like collaboration in filmmaking, you know, like David Fincher is a director who does not write his films. And that is kind of rare uh, for, you know, a filmmaker of his stature, I guess. And the fact that this was his father's script, and the fact that it is playing with one of the most famous stories of filmmaking collaboration in history. It's all like a very interesting muddle, but it never clarifies what it actually thinks about any of this, I think, other than like collaboration is good, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, collaboration is important, but I don't think it like it comes through in any sort of emotional or thoughtful way. It's interesting because, you know, Fincher has talked about how the first draft of the screenplay was really sort of, you know, Vankovich was robbed. And this is not that. I think it's actually, it definitely gives Vankovich so much credit for writing what became Citizen Kane. And it doesn't put a lot of emphasis on the many, many cuts and revisions that were were made to that first draft of the script. There was a whole subplot about a presidential assassination. At one point, Kane had one of uh, Susan Alexander's lovers murdered. I mean, these are, these are <laughs> things that did not make it into the final draft. But it also, I think it's fair to Wells in the sense that it stops when he, you know, it stops depicting anything after he hands the screenplay over to mm. Wells. Like it leaves, you know, you to fill in that blank with what, what, you know, there's no, there's not, there's nothing to take away from Wells' accomplishment as, as a filmmaker working from that script. I mean, I think a lot of it is personal in a way. I think the real enemy here is not the credit grabbing director, but, but the studio system. And I think there's a personal connection there in that I, th I think a lot of Fincher's career path was shaped by his horrible experience making Alien 3. Mm -hmm. And I think he's he's been someone who has demanded complete control over what he's done since then. And it's almost, you know, for, for someone who is one of the few directors working today at a studio level who can, you know, whose name alone attracts interest to a film, he's still kind of an outlier. He's talked about how he can only make Gone Girl because it's a known property, you know, not because there's a, a vision of, of a great movie could be made from this from this story. So there's sort of a, a same as it ever was quality to uh, the way Mank depicts Hollywood. But I think some of that is reflective of, of Fincher's own experience. I honestly think it was a mistake to leave in all of the stuff at the end about his struggle with Wells for credit. His, mm. I, I feel like that's drumming up a little bit of added angst and drama at the end that isn't really reflected throughout a lot of the rest of the story and maybe isn't particularly thematic with it. It seems to me that most of this story is is fundamentally about Mankiewicz facing the fact that he spent a lot of his career as kind of a court gesture, looking down on people who are working in Hollywood, like looking down on the whole game as trifling and a ridiculous way to earn a living. And 
Thalberg confronts him with it, and he's already in the process of accepting that to some degree he feels like he's wasted his life and the real power is at work doing terrible things all around him, and he's not using any of his own ability to speak truth to it. And then he decides to commit, and he does something terrible and destructive. And all of that is good drama. It's a good, solid backbone for a film, even if it's a little overstretched and and takes a little time to come together, you know, for all of the puzzle pieces to assemble, to use uh, Citizen Kane's metaphor for it. (laughs) So then to kind of tack on at the end, a drama between him and Wells, where there was a struggle for credit, and then uh, the kind of petty bitchery at the end with them both dissing each other in their faux Oscar speeches. All of that just sort of, I kept asking, like, what is this? Sure, it's a nice detail, but there were a million details that were left out of this film. Why was it important to leave this nonsense in when it doesn't speak to the character and and who he is and the story that this movie seems to think is so important? Well, especially when you have this, to my mind, much more interesting conflict between Mankiewicz and Hearst. And I think where Mank kind of succeeds in doing something interesting with the, the Citizen Kane backstory is sort of illuminating or recontextualizing the Hearst angle. You know, we talked in the first half about our lack of modern context for Kane being a thinly veiled uh, Hearst, not quite biopic, but takedown satir- satirization. And Mank, I think, does a good job sort of clarifying, if maybe not the full truth of what happened there, then at least giving a sort of plausible framework for why this character of Charles Foster Kane so obviously mirrors Hearst. Yeah, and I mean, the mirror there is interesting. The criticism of him is interesting. I think Citizen Kane comes across as an understanding film to some degree, a sympathetic film that keeps its distance from Kane, but also, you know, sees the humanity in him and maybe mourns his downfall, mourns the waste of that potential. In Mank, you're seeing the impulses that led to the drawing of that portrait, and they feel much less sympathetic. And it kind of invites you to ponder what's going on in Mankiewicz's head as he's writing, to to ponder as he keeps defending his character assassination, essentially, of Marion Davies, while repeatedly saying, well, no, it's not her. It's not her. Knowing full well that everybody's going to think it's her. There's just, there's a lot of complexity going on in there in terms of like what he's thinking, what he's wanting, where he wants to put it. And all of that just seems like a much more interesting story to me uh, than kind of some of the side roads that this film goes down. I don't know why we spend so much time on Rita Alexander and uh, her character arc. There's a lot of byways in there. I don't know why we spend so much time with Irving Thalberg, who's an interesting character and kind of like positioned as an opposition to Mankiewicz. But Mankiewicz is in opposition to everyone. Like, did we need to see so many people as different styles of foils to him, given how many stories this movie is trying to tell all at once? That said, I think the Marion Davies stuff is probably my favorite of the film, and not just because Seyfried gives a, a really, really strong performance. She's just really good in this, and honestly, everything. Yeah, she's <laughs> um, <laughs> we don't talk enough about how great Amanda Seyfried is, but maybe we are now. But yeah, I think like kind of that, uh, what you were talking about, Tasha, of him like knowing full well how this character is going to be interpreted and denying it the whole time. It kind of functions as a almost redemption of the Susan Alexander Kane character, who is, you know, in the first half we talked about her, but I don't think we talked about how she functions in relation to Kane and whether we're supposed to feel sympathy toward her or him or how the film expects us to feel about her. So I think what Mank does a good job of is just sort of filling in some blanks there that in the process enriches the character in Citizen Kane, as well as giving us an interesting character in this film. 
Oh, I agree with you. And I'm, I also agree that she's one of the standout elements of the film. And I kind of love every scene where she and Mank are actually fencing off of each other. And mm-hmm. we're kind of getting to see both of them by watching them through each other's eyes. I, I think that all of that is very interesting stuff. I kind of love the fact that he, like, he's got a wife. He's got a very specific and peculiar relationship with her. She's got a husband. She's got a very specific and peculiar relationship with him. I don't feel like there's much of a romantic spark between Marion and Mank, apart from just sort of the inevitable, I'm a beautiful woman, you're a clever man, we're alone together, bantering. Uh, You know, there's the vaguest sense of something there, but it's just obviated and overshadowed by all of these other things going on. So they're free to explore each other's characters in ways that movies very often don't get into. You know, because romance is so simple and easy in a movie, but like this kind of intellectual sparring and challenging each other and and self-discovery is a lot more complicated and a lot harder to do. I think they're the two characters who kind of know the score the most, too, who kind of see the most angles of, of this world. And, and you know, Mank still seems determined to do his best to, you know, tear at it. If not tear it down, at least kind of pick away and criticize it where she's kind of resigned to exist within it. Um, you know, I, I think kind of like she's, she's grown comfortable in this world, kind of like as, as with her marriage, she talked about how maybe she didn't love Hearst at first, but she loves him now. He's someone she knows. Uh, she's <laughs> very familiar with him and, and, and his needs and has grown fond of him over the years. And I think that's the difference between uh, the fundamental differences is, is that she's kind of accepted the way things are and he's still trying to rebel against them and, and, you know, whether or not one's a better way to survive in the world is, is remains an open question by the end of the movie, I think. Although the moment where she refuses to help him with a lie, because she doesn't want to lie, which is a noble and good reason, I think, and mm-hmm. because she doesn't want to spoil her dramatic exit, which is a terrible reason. <laughs> it's a great little piece of uh, back and forth, ironic reversal. And I think his his response to it, his baffled, wry frustration and despair is uh, a very telling and, and apt response. Like all of that is really great drama. The two of them are just good together. Mm-hmm. I wanted more of those sparks throughout the film. I wanted more of that energy. Another scene in the movie that I I think just really stands out that I really enjoyed, it was the introduction of uh, Charles Lederer, how he gets kind of hauled into a meeting where Mankiewicz and a team of writers is pretending that they've been hard at work preparing a treatment for a screenplay that they clearly have not been thinking about at Mm. all because they've been clowning around. And it feeds further into Mankiewicz's kind of feeling like this is all a shell game. What we do is all baloney. We're just kind of selling allusions to stuffed shirts in order to make our weekly wage. And it reveals him. It reveals him very much as a character, as a con artist, as a, again, a class clown who has a many, many other things on his mind. But it's also just like a, a crackerjack little piece of drama. Like, are they going to pull it off? How are they going to pull it off? How smart are the people they're in the room with? And it turns out the people they're in the room with are smarter than they give them credit for. I liked all of that. Yeah, it's also they fail the assignment. You know, even like, you know, they know they're half-assing it, but at the same time, they can't create this commercial product. And I th- think it's kind of like because, you know, it's beneath them, but it's it's like kind of beneath their abilities in a, in a really interesting way where they, you know, Hollywood's brought in more talent than it really knows what to do with. And what you end up with is a lot of frustrated artists who can't really fully express themselves where, where people who are like would be happier turning out like this hacky story of mad scientist and what else, whatever else goes into uh, their, their sort of exquisite corpse uh, composition <laughs> might actually be better suited for this world. But there's no sense that the assignment they were given was to make a monster movie or to Mm. make a horror movie. In fact, the people that they're pitching it to seem contemptuous of the idea as soon as they start. It seems like they've been given a much more open-ended assignment to do something interesting and innovative, and they've just completely blown it because it would require work. I feel like that's almost more telling than anything else is given freedom to create whatever they want. What they want is uh, to do as little work as possible. Hmm. I'm not. I'm not saying that uh, this movie is at all wrong about writers, <laughs> but it certainly provides an interesting contract to where Mank ends up. 
All right. Well, there's lots more to talk about with Mank, but let's talk about it in relation to Citizen Kane in the section Haven't we Haven't we been doing that? Well, kind of <laughs> have, yeah. But now we'll do it more structured. Well, we, we more flashed structure. back to Kane several times. Now we're going to suddenly flash forward to a deeper uh, conversation. We'll, we'll be more explicit about uh, the connections when we get back after this break. The bastard Renee. You were there. Yes, he reinstated salaries, but he never gave back the money he promised. Giant surprise. Come on, Meg. We need guys like you to keep people like Mayor honest. I'd refer you for that to the power of prayer. The Writers Guild doesn't have to hit the bricks for the $2,500 a week guy. We're doing it for the $250 a week. So all the $250 a week writers I know are getting $2,500. Stop crying, sure. You're just desserts and they'll able to give them to you. And then we'll all be working for 75 bucks a week. I don't know if you've ever walked a picket line. You might have to. And Dave Chasen will cater. Junior writers only paid 750 a week. If that happens, you'd better run before real folk with real trouble stone you to death. Now it's time for Connections, where we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think there is some connective tissue between Citizen Kane and Meg. Am, am, I, am I wrong? I guess one thing that we could talk about is, is their approach to biography. These are both in their own way, you know, one way or another, kind of biopics, one more explicitly than... The other, Mank is a little more beholden to cover the facts. Does it still kind of get the full scope of what it tries to do because of that? Or, or uh, well, I mean, it's, it's weird this thing to say, but does Citizen Kane do it better? <laughs> well, I mean, these are two very different approaches to biography. Like one is the almost birth to death, certainly childhood to death approach that tries to take in the entire scope of a life and figure out how it fits a theme. And the other one is the let's zero in on the most significant chapter of this life and then see what we need to jump around to pick up to make it make more sense. And I don't think either of those approaches is necessarily better or worse. I guess we can't ding Citizen Kane for what people took away from it, but I'm going to ding all of the biographies that ever followed <laughs> that kind of decided that somebody's course was set in childhood, right. <laughs> maybe set in childhood based around one specific catchphrase or significant <laughs> sentence that was said to them. Or some sort of talisman. <laughs> some sort of talisman that was given to them. You know, their entire world in some way revolved around this one important scene in their childhood. And now they're just going to engage solely with that forever, that that's what defines them as human beings. Way, way too many biopics took that from Kane and, and simplified it even more. And I just kind of are terrible as a result. But I mean, at least in terms of structure and approach, I think these are such different movies around that element. And yet they're both kind of dealing with one big theme about how people disappoint themselves. And in that, I think they've got uh, something pretty key in common. They're kind of about great successes and famous men who are also in their own way, failures who disappointed themselves. And uh, they just they come at it from different angles. We could talk about the storytelling style too, which is which is of course pretty much strongly tied into the to the biographical <laughs> elements. But Meg borrows a lot from Citizen Kane in terms of of shots, but also in in terms of its approach to chronology. Is the effect different by the the narrower chronology? We don't we don't see Meg as a kid, and we don't see Meg at the end of his life. Although it's not too far away from the end of this of this movie, is is it effective to keep the focus a little narrower? I mean. I feel like Citizen Kane, even though it jumps around in time, feels so much more natural in its progression than Mank does, because Mank is pretty much just jumping back and forth between two periods, whereas Citizen Kane is sort of weaving in and out of different periods in Kane's life. And, you know, Mank uses these screenwriting intertitles, you know, mm -hmm. that, again, feel a little sweaty and self-conscious to me but you know it is a, a film about filmmaking so so I'll allow it but what was so striking to me watching Kane this time is the way that these vignettes flow really naturally into each other Kane just feels so much less self-conscious in its structure than Mank does, probably because Mank is kind of attempting to do a similar thing, but it's doing it in a different way. And it's just, it feels more bound to this flashback structure, whereas Kane is sort of a little more freely meandering in service of the vignettes that are going to be most useful to the revelation of this character. 
Yeah, and to me, that ends up being a really important structural difference in the film. Citizen Kane ends up feeling like a very directed journey. There's a man on a quest, and he talks to different people. And as he talks to different people, they tell him different things. That's how we experience life. It's the chronology of actually going through our day, like speaking to people and learning things or not learning things. Whereas all of the structure in Mank comes from a very artificial, external structuring kind of pretending that it's a screenplay, you know, the little things that pop up on screen that say, you know, exterior day 1934 flashback or whatever. It's mimicking the structure of a screenplay, specifically sort of mimicking the structure of the Citizen Kane screenplay. But it's a contrivance within the film. It's not diegetic. Mm -hmm. It's an external contrivance. And it always feels kind of contrived to me. And never more so than during that final big sequence. I absolutely agree with Keith that that final face-off with Hearst is a very powerful scene mm -hmm. and excruciatingly uncomfortable in a way that just really ramps up the drama. But to my mind, repeatedly chopping it up just deflates a lot of that drama and doing it mostly so you can get those things on the screen, like, uh, and now we're suddenly cutting to this other time period, uh, just strikes me as artifice that gets in the way of the emotion, which is just not something you want in a film. I think the the scene that felt like kind of the centerpiece of Mank to me was the election night scene. And I, I think like that is sort of the moment where the two timelines of Mank kind of come together. Like obviously it's still in the past, but like what's happening in the quote unquote present suddenly becomes better illuminated in that moment. Plus, I think it's just like a really cool scene, the whole or sequence, I should say, um, the whole the whole election night th thing. It's a very, you know, bravura sequence, I guess. There's mm -hmm. a lot going on. It's very exciting. It's high energy in a way that a lot of the film honestly is not. You know, this, this is a very talky film in, in a lot of places. And the election night, I think, kind of felt the closest to me of capturing the energy that Kane has. And, and honestly, Kane also a very talky film, but it does have a lot of these like very energetic, evocative sequences. And that part in Mank felt kind of the closest in spirit to Kane, just in terms of the filmmaking style, and then also its effect on clarifying the story. Maybe part of that is just the degree to which in that sequence, all of the pieces have already been put in place. And as a result, the characters don't have to spend so <laughs> much time talking. Right. Like, as you say, these are both very talky films, but... You know, in Kane, an awful lot of the subtext is below the surface. We don't have anybody come out and give a speech about why it's necessary for him to fire Jedediah or why it's necessary for Jedediah to move off to Chicago. We understand from the dynamics between the men, from what they've tried to do and failed to do and how they're feeling about it, why they make these big moves. But in Mank, there's, it just feels like there's a lot more speechifying of people explaining their motives. Mm -hmm. And during the election sequence, nobody has to explain their motives. They just deal with each other person to person. And like all of that subtext, all of that emotion is simmering under the surface in a way that, again, feels a lot more natural, a lot less stagey. I, I think that's why it's such a powerful sequence. With that scene, I couldn't help but think of, of shampoo too. It's sort of a, a, oh, a yeah. moment when when things went wrong, and and also like another like you know we we hear about liberal California a lot, but you know there's, there's it's not all liberal California. We got to see yeah. in, as as with shampoo, we get to see a little bit of that here, and I think it is key in establishing why Makovitz Mank, is is you know so angry at, at the establishment, and I think it's probably. You know, it almost renders it's, – it's such a well-done sequence. I think it renders the suicide of the filmmaker drawn into the fake newsreel campaign a little um, kind of unnecessary, frankly. Although I, mm -hmm. I do love the fake newsreel stuff. That's a really good detail with uh, some timely <laughs> resonance uh, as well. Yeah, there were definitely moments where Meg felt like a political film made last week mm -hmm. to cover the last couple of months. The immigrants are coming to take all the jobs and, and all the jobs, <laughs> the taxes, all the jobs will have to relocate to Florida. Like I didn't really know about that kind of whisper campaign stuff that I'm sure was taken from actual historical 
details to that. See, it's, it's things like that that I make th- about Mank that I really appreciate. I just kind of wish that it was all a little more gracefully done or a little, I don't know, a little, yeah. a little more, a little more like a citizen cane, I guess. <laughs> uh, that's a problem we're going to run into repeatedly through these comparisons. We did talk about politics and cronyism a little bit. We, we raised the topic. We should maybe talk about it, how it plays out in Kane versus how it plays out in in Mank. And I think one of the key differences is with Kane, the character, you know, Charles Foster Kane kind of gets drawn into this system of cronyism that he that he that he despises he becomes what w- what he hates and and uh mank remains an outsider to it although he's uh, made aware that he's not really an outsider he kind of fashions himself as an outsider they're, they're different journeys in that sense well they're also both journeys heavily influenced by propaganda by people mm. realizing the the power that they have to sway the public by throwing things at them that may or may not be true you know both uh, Hearst and Kane in these the, these respective films use effectively the power of lies the power of selective understanding the power of selective storytelling to try to chase people to their size to try to communicate things to them that are maybe not in their own interest and it's sort of interesting that in Citizen Kane we basically see the downfall of a man as a truth teller in part because he's trying to convince everyone that the woman that he's married is a fantastic singer, which is something he needs for his image. This is part of the dissolution of himself as an idealist. And on the other side, we see a man whose dissolution of himself as a wastrel, like his <laughs> confirmation as an idealist comes from seeing behind the propaganda, from seeing all of the things that Hearst and various people involved with him have been weaponizing in order to turn the people against, again, their own interests, against uh, – the people who are, in theory, at least trying to protect their wages and protect their jobs and protect their futures. So part of what Pauline Kael argues in Raising Cain, as flawed as that is a scholarship, I, th- I think there's a nice bit of criticism here where she talks about how Mankiewicz himself and also the people he helped bring to Hollywood – brought sort of this wit and uh, jadedness that kind of became what we associate with classic uh, Hollywood dialogue, particularly of the early or the sound era and, and, and the studio era. We see that play out in Susan Kane in the sharpness of the dialogue and, and the cleverness of it and in sort of the and in sort of the world weary attitude that ultimately permeates that film. Uh, and here, as I kind of suggested before, it turns Mac turns Mankiewicz into a Mankiewicz character, always always a, a clever line. Uh, which, you know, was his reputation anyway, but always sort of a slightly, I don't know, sort of a well-defined persona in some ways with um, less of the sort of whose, – whose internal life is conveyed through clever observations and, and little behavior ticks more than what we now associate with like sort of method acting and sort of like psychology first uh, presentation. Um, so, you know, we, we get two examples of Mankiewicz's influence, uh, you know, one – one direct and, and one indirect. Do you feel like the Mankiewicz we hear in the screenplay that says in Kane kind of jives with the Mankiewicz we see presented in the film Mank? Maybe. I, I mean, I think, as you said, it comes through in sort of the, the sharp wit of Citizen Kane, which we have discussed as something that is maybe not thought of first and foremost when discussing its, its legacy. So I think taken in the context of Mankiewicz being this quote unquote secondary figure that was also integral in the the shaping of the film, it does kind of feel apt that that element of Kane that is so presumably connected to him and his voice is something that is uh, overshadowed by Wells's contributions to to Citizen Kane. Which were many. <laughs> I don't. I feel like I don't know enough about the actual Mankiewicz to necessarily answer this question right. because I like I I don't know if the version that we're seeing on screen actually has anything to do with the real version. But the version on screen certainly seems like a man likely to produce Citizen Kane, mostly just in that Citizen Kane is a story that's obsessed with 
failure, that's obsessed with bitterness, that's obsessed with lost potential and disappointments, that's obsessed with whether people live up to their ideals or fail them, that's obsessed with misleading the public, like all of these things that seem to be very much on Mankiewicz's mind as he's writing this story. And for good reason. Mank very much does seem like it's kind of trying to frame the mindset of the person who would have written this film, not even necessarily as a diatribe against Hearst specifically, but as a diatribe against self-delusion, as a diatribe against grandeur, as a diatribe against letting go of the potential that you have and ending up in a place that you never meant to end up with, which are all things that we see Mankiewicz doing himself or concerning himself with, or we see other people accusing him of in ways that leave him kind of naked and exposed. So, I mean, I can't really speak to his voice per se, but I can say that Mank seems like a more emotionally evocative and effective movie to me when I think about the way the character on screen, the way that bitterness and sense of disillusion and sense of disappointment fed into kind of creating this avatar that's mostly an avatar of Hearst, but also is to some degree an avatar of himself. Well, it seems like a good place to end it. I I think, you know, even though we're not over the moon for Mank, it's been fun talking about it. I think it it sheds light on on Citizen Kane. I think it's also a way to get past a problem that we brought up at the beginning, which is, you know, how do, how do you talk about this thing that's been talked to death? Well, here's a different angle on it. So anyway, <laughs> I think it's worth uh, worth seeing both. Well, obviously, worth seeing Citizen Kane, which is now currently streaming on HBO Max and available to rent to the usual platforms and on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, as usual, I'd like to recommend the Blu-ray version. It's got a great Roger Ebert commentary on it. It's just nice to hear his voice talking you through a movie again. Mank can currently be seen on Netflix and theoretically in select theaters by the time you hear this. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? So I recently caught up on Trial of the Chicago 7 mm. on Netflix, which, you know, speaking of movies about propaganda and manipulating the media, uh, speaking of movies that are openly questioning the reality and bringing in history, but kind of manipulating it into banter, this movie, directed by and written by Aaron Sorkin, certainly could fit on a kind of a sliding scale with Citizen Kane and Mank in terms of kind of the things that that it's obsessed with. But it's also just kind of a crackerjack courtroom drama. It's the story of the Chicago 8, later the Chicago 7, at some point the Chicago 10, if you've seen Chicago 10, which is another movie about the same story. But a group of protesters who were brought to trial for their involvement in the 1968 Chicago Democratic Convention riots. And just from the beginning, this movie feels like an exercise in montage and banter. It's incredibly Aaron Sorkin-y. It's very barbed. It's very witty. One of the big saving graces for it is it seems to be actually closer to the truth than a lot of his screenplays. You know, I loved The Social Network back in its day, but it was one of those movies where if you start looking into the truth behind the story, you just find so many places where he threw the truth out the window. I kept pausing Trial of the Chicago 7 to look up, okay, did this happen? Did he say this? Was this part of a speech? And uh, like over and over, like, oh, yeah, that's actually pretty accurate. Now, he does make some huge, huge divergences from the truth in pursuit of a good moment or a good line or a good story. Certainly, nobody should watch this and assume that they've done the research for their uh, thesis paper on what really (laughs) happened in this courtroom. But it's so entertaining. And I say that as somebody who's not always down with Sorkin's particular brand of banter and wit. Sasha Baron Cohen is kind of central to the whole thing, playing Abby Hoffman. Jerry Strong backs him up as Jerry Rubin, and the two of them just kind of class clown it up 
during the course of this trial. Uh, but the whole ensemble is really good. Uh, Bridge of Spies, Mark Rylance plays their attorney. He's really, really strong. Yaya Abdul-Mateen, too, from Watchmen, uh, plays Bobby Seal, And that's kind of a, an intense, heartbreaking performance. Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays the opposing counsel. Uh, Franklin Langella is just a, kind of amazing as the judge presiding over it all. It's just, it's a big, colorful ensemble cast, but Sorkin balances it all. He manages to keep these characters distinct from each other. He manages to tell individual stories with them. He manages to convey how frustrating it must have been for all of them to be thrown together and tried together when they didn't know each other for the most part and didn't feel like they were at all part of the same movements. And then he winds up telling this story that I found really interesting and relevant to the moment about how progressives kind of attack each other and see each other as radically different, uh, as pursuing different goals and probably in the wrong ways. But then as soon as you put them up against the opposition, they all kind of realize that they are coming from the same place and they start kind of working together and pulling together. So the course of this movie, it's a story about injustice. It's the kind of thing that, you know, is meant to get y'all riled up and, uh, and angry because of, uh, because there's so much injustice. And then you get what you actually want, which is kind of some justice and you get to feel good about yourselves. But along the way, it becomes just a really interesting portrait. It's again, no coincidence that it was made for 2020. It's a really interesting portrait of present politics, of the manipulation of politics, the manipulation of the media, of biased judges and what they can do to a courtroom, of you know, mistrials and public perception. There's there's a lot going on in this movie. And it really surprised me how purely and thoroughly I enjoyed it, how purely and thoroughly entertaining I thought it was. That's good to hear because it's a movie that I keep hovering over in my in my Netflix uh, screen. And then I'm like, I don't know if I have this in me right now. <laughs> so um, which is, is probably unfair. Like I kind of have this feeling if I don't know if I have like a Sorkin movie in me right now, but maybe now that we're on the other side of the election that that feeling I don't hold that feeling quite so strongly. But that's just sort of maybe a personal bias coming through. So it's it's definitely one that I am going to catch up with. So maybe this is the push I need. It's on Netflix. And I'll tell you, it's one of those movies that if you watch the first 10 minutes and find yourself kind of itching to turn it off, this movie is not for you. Mm -hmm. And if you watch the first 10 minutes and you're not itching to turn it off, you're probably going to watch the whole thing in one sitting without <laughs> even noticing the time passing. It I, Again, it, it just really surprised me how quickly and effortlessly this movie reeled me in. Keith, what about you? What's been good for you lately? I got two quick ones for you from filmmakers we know and, and like. On Apple TV Plus, you can watch a film called On the Rocks, uh, directed by Sofia Coppola, mm. uh, which I enjoyed a lot. It is exceedingly minor, uh, but, but by design. It is a very small scale, very little story, but it wants to be kind of like this nice little miniature comedy. And I think it succeeds quite well. Rashida Jones plays a New Yorker, an author, who's um, starting to suspect that her husband is having an affair. And not helping the suspicions is her father, played by Bill Murray, who is playing an absolute charmer um, who only, only becomes apparent later on that he's kind of a toxic presence to, to everyone around him. Uh, and yet, um, it, it's a really fun performance. Uh, Jones and Murray are really good together. Murray's kind of playing the opposite of his Lost in Translation character, where's, where a man who is seemingly enjoying every moment of his life, uh, although possibly for the wrong reasons. But there's some nice scenes of vulnerability. I think it's one of his best performances in a long time. Over on each, uh, Amazon Prime or Amazon Prime Video or however, whatever, whatever we call that service now, mm -hmm. uh, you can find Call it a, t a mini series. Call it five movies. Call it whatever you want to. Uh, it's called Small Acts. It's Steve McQueen's uh, five. Let's just call them movies because they're feature length uh, individual things. Five films about the West Indian experience in London between the years roughly 1960 and, and the 1980s uh, is sort of an undercovered culture. I mean, you know, you don't necessarily see a lot of stories set telling that history, telling the people that were there. Steve McQueen himself is of uh, West Indian parentage. And uh, so this is in some ways a personal project for him. I've seen three of the five films and they're all quite good. Uh, and they're all kind of 
different riffs on some familiar forms. Um, Mangrove is a, a true life. It's a, it's would probably be a good double feature of uh, Chicago seven, which I haven't seen trial of Chicago seven, which I haven't seen yet, but it's a notable trial that brought racism into focus via the, the harassment of a, a restaurant. The third one's called red, white, and blue. It stars John Boyega, who's great. It's kind of a Serpico ish. Um, also a fact-based story of the, uh, a black man who, who becomes a policeman in hopes to, to make things better and finds uh, how difficult that is, you know, even to change the system from within. But the one I want to highlight a little bit more is called Lover's Rock, uh, which is set at a house party in 1980 London. And I'll, I won't say more than that, uh, but it is uh, in plot wise, because there's really not that much more to it plot wise. It is just a, a completely immersive atmospheric film that captures life at this particular moment. And it is filled with wonderful music, both recorded music and also via a DJ who is, you know, as as one would do it at these sorts of parties, kind of DJ and, and an MC who kind of amplifying and remixing on the spot and 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 adding uh, toasting and other spoken word elements to it. It is, if it's a TV show, if it's a movie, whatever, it may be the best thing I've seen this year. So I'll just leave it at that. Please enjoy Small X and please enjoy On the Rocks. Uh, Genevieve, how about you? Well, those are two other things that I am looking very forward to. And I am also considering small X movies because that means I don't have to cover it uh, <laughs> under the TV section. <laughs> well, I reviewed it for TV Guide. So, you know, it's, 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 de- it's definitely in, in, in a middle ground, but um, it's like a movie anthology series. Mm-hmm. But. Sure. Anyway, I am going to recommend something very different, much shorter, uh, a little <laughs> film called Save Yourselves, which is a, a small comedy that was released back in October. It's the feature debut of filmmakers Alex Houston Fisher and Eleanor Wilson, who share writing and directing credits. And it stars Sunita Manny, who you may know from Mr. Robot and Glow, and John Paul Reynolds, who is one of the leads of the TV series Search Party. There are a few other small supporting roles, but for the most part, this is a two-hander, a about a modern millennial couple who decide to do that thing that so many internet-bound people fantasize about doing and unplug from the world for a week while staying at a Fred's remote cabin. Uh, However, that week happens to coincide with a global disaster, an alien invasion to be precise, which they don't find out about until it's more or less in its final stages. Like Sue and Jack, the main couple, we only get the barest information about what's happening and the beings who are causing the destruction. So it's interesting from a storytelling perspective to watch it unfold. And I will just go ahead and warn you now, if you're a person who doesn't care for ambiguous endings, you may very well be annoyed by how this film ends. (laughs) I actually found the ending kind of wonderful, uh, but it's really more about the journey to that ending alongside Manny and Reynolds, who have such a believable and fun and specific chemistry as this couple who know each other really well, but are also completely unequipped to deal with the situation in which they find themselves, particularly as it relates to protecting each other in that situation. At times, its comedy and premise reminded me a lot of another film with a similar premise that Scott recently recommended on this podcast, Uh, It's a Disaster. But this film is ultimately more concerned with the relationship at its center than the world-ending disaster happening around it. So, yeah, uh, it's a really... I watch it as a date night movie. I think it's a really great date night movie if that's something you're looking for. Or if you just want a well-executed genre comedy, I would recommend you check out Save Yourselves which is currently rentable just about everywhere and streaming on Spectrum, whatever that is. I put the ending of Save Yourselves in the uh, category that our uh, former employer and mentor, Stephen Thompson, now of NPR, refers to as bat poop crazy. <laughs> that is a, a really wacky ending. What I think delighted me most about Save Yourselves was from the setup and from kind of the previewing materials that I had, it seemed like it was going to be very much a story about clueless millennials. Mm-hmm. Uh, clueless millennials miss the alien invasion. Clueless millennials don't know what to do with the alien invasion. Clueless millennials can't be away from their phones for too long. Har har. Clueless millennials don't know how to handle a relationship or what their relationship to themselves is. 
and it kind of feels like it starts in that point. I, I was going to say, to be fair, the first 10 minutes are very much that. <laughs> yeah, and then it just it just completely takes off from there. And I was expecting a much more kind of mumble Corey Duplass kind of comedy than what I got, which was a really startling and innovative movie. It's very small. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very, very, very indie. Um, it's very, very weird. But I enjoyed that movie quite a bit. And I really was not anticipating where it goes. Yeah. And the I should say the aliens are also uh, how, how they are um, presented are is also very uh, indie and weird. <laughs> but I think I think it, it works. I don't want to spoil it here. But uh, were, were you also on board for the, the alien beings as we see them? Yeah, I feel like it's rare to see something that's so accurately lives in the exact uh, liminal space between critters and the dark crystal. But that's that's kind of what I ended up feeling we were like we were looking at. Well, good. I'm glad to have you back me up on that, Tasha, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's one I've been hanging on to for a while. And it's it has nothing to do with this pairing. Although I guess it's maybe a little War of the Worlds-esque, uh, at least in its in its setup. But there actually that's is true. an alien invasion. So. I'll back uh, you up on that. All right, cool. Yeah, totally on, on topic. <laughs> good job me <laughs> and that's it for this edition of the next picture show our next pairing will come out december 15th and december 22nd tasha what's coming up next Tom Moore's animated fable Wolf Walkers is headed to Apple TV Plus on December 4th after a brief tour of film festivals and theaters which is a shame in a way because Moore's films look so incredible on the big screen the Irish filmmaker who directed The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea specializes in hand-drawn animation that doesn't look or feel like anyone else's work. It's full of patterns and textures inspired by Irish art, with stories drawn from Irish history and folklore. Wolfwalkers similarly follows a young girl in Ireland who's out to help her father hunt a wolf pack when she meets a girl with the power to turn into a wolf. We could have paired it with another Moore film, but we also saw a resonance with another filmmaker we love who we haven't talked about enough on this podcast, John Sayles, whose independent 1994 fable The Secret of Rowan Inish also draws on Irish folklore for a slightly more modern version of fairy tale. Like Moore's Song of the Sea, The Secret of Rowan Inish taps into the myth of the Selkie, a race of people who can become seals or maybe vice versa. We'll see whether that movie offers any clues when we check out that double feature next week. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Citizen Kane, Mank, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha! I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find my writing there. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Genevieve? I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and I am on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And as of recently, I was on a really fun podcast that I want to shout out called Ho oh Yeah, which is a King of the Hill podcast hmm. named after one of Peggy Hill's uh, catchphrases. And they go through each episode of King of the Hill. But I was on an episode where we kind of went in depth on a list I wrote for the AV Club back in the day about uh, 10 episodes that sort of define King of the Hill. And it was a really fun conversation. And it was good to revisit that series, which I still love a lot. So if you are at all interested in hearing me talk for 90 minutes about King of the Hill, uh, check me out on Ho oh Yeah! <laughs> Well, if we're talking about recent podcasts, uh, I was recently asked to guest on a, a podcast called Frugal Living. I keep seeing by... this on Twitter. I keep seeing like, and I was like, Tasha, what is this podcast you are on? So tell tell us. <laughs> so there's a company called Brad's Deals that uh, just basically exists to find people the best deals on things and uh, get them to them. And a good friend of mine works for Brad's Deals and is also uh, a podcaster and producer <laughs> and audio editor and kind of has a little uh, side gig on his gig, he started producing a podcast for them. And he expressly asked me to come in and talk to them about uh, more or less the best ways to get cheap to free movies. So uh, over the course of a, we rambled at each other for an hour, and then he cut it down to just like a diamond sharp 20 minutes of the best ways to get cheap movies to get free movies to find the movies that you're looking for online to watch movies for free with friends. It was a, a really lively and interesting conversation. Fun. What was it called again? 
The podcast itself is called Frugal Living, and I am on. I am the special guest on episode six. Cool, Keith. Where can people find you online? And have you been on any podcasts recently? <laughs> uh, just this one, but I'm available for podcasts. Um, contact my booking agent. Oh no, just just hit me up on Twitter. <laughs> I like doing podcasts when I have time. Oh hey, speaking of book. Ing or just books. Uh, uh-huh. Have you accomplished anything useful lately? I, I, I turned in a draft. We'll just leave it at that. I turned in a draft. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, you know, I'm not going to jinx it till there's a finished manuscript. But you can find me on Twitter at kfips3000. I'm a freelance writer. You can find me at such places as Vulture, Mel, The Ringer. I, I should have a piece up. By the time this comes out, I'll have a piece up there about Mank and Kane and sort of the, the very historical battle over who deserves credit for Citizen Kane. You can find me, what a TV guide. You can find me at GQ. Uh, I'm all over the place these days. You can find our absent co-host, Scott Tobias, also a freelance writer who writes for such places as the New York Times and The Ringer. And I can't keep track of all the places uh, Scott writes. <laughs> you can find him on at Scott Tobias on Twitter. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Bake, Jake's for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proudly part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. And the union forever. <laughs> like Brandon, like McNally, it's teamwork. Right to the final tally, it's teamwork. Although we hold each other in low esteem, we find it takes teamwork. Hey now, alone with teamwork. What's life without teamwork? There's no teamwork.